We are in the book of Matthew. Let's turn there. Matthew chapter 14 is where we find ourselves as we journey through the book of Matthew together. Today's text is a, a popular text. Even if you've never read the Bible, even if you're not a Christian, you've heard about this text. You've heard of the story of Jesus walking on water. And uh, you're familiar with this, but the Lord has some stuff to teach us through it. So let's open our Bibles there. Matthew 14. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 36, and the title of this sermon is Good Things and Hard Places. Good Things and Hard Places. I will be reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. So starting in verse 22, we read this. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to the disciples walking on the lake. When they saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus, Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. This is God's word. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, for your glorious power. And we thank you for being a faithful Savior. You are the one whom we call upon. When we're sinking, you are the only one who can reach out and save us. Like Pastor Sean said earlier, you're the only one that is risen from the dead. You are the great and glorious Son of God, our Savior and our Redeemer. And we thank you for your word. It's a very true, inerrant word of God to us. We ask that you bless our ears to hear it, bless our eyes to behold it. Give us grace in our hearts to obey it. And we ask together that you would help me now to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to the Bible and helpful to the church. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here in this area, affectionately known as the promised land, Carpinteria, we don't get a whole lot of seasonal change, as you may have noticed. But we do get a little bit, and those of us that have lived here for a long time, we have discerned that it seems as though spring has sprung. It seems as though spring has come to us. And I know that April is on the cusp, but it seems as though the rains are behind us. And I'm happy about that because I hate the rain. Oh, I know. 
If you're disappointed in that, don't tell anybody this, but I loved the drought. I know that's bordering on evil and incredibly selfish, but I really enjoyed the drought because I, I hate the rain. I hate the rain simply because it messes with my gig. It's inconvenient. I live in Carpinteria for a reason. I don't want to deal with rain. Okay, I want to be able to leave my house and wear whatever I'm wearing and do what I want to do and not be bothered by the rain and the wind and those sorts of things. I want blue sky and smooth sailing every day, all day, all the time. But that isn't the way that the world works, is it? If we didn't have the wind and the rain, if we didn't have storms, nothing would grow. And then we would truly be inconvenienced. Then we would actually suffer without the wind and the rain. So we realize that we have to suffer storms. That's part of the way that this physical world works. We need the wind and the rain for the earth and for humanity to flourish, right? We look around right now and after all the rain that we had, everything is green. And isn't it beautiful? I, I, I enjoy that. And it won't last long around here. It's going to get brown soon. Even I might be praying for one last little drizzle to green things up. But I, even though I don't like the rain, I, I do like its effect. I do like the greening, growing, beautiful effect. And that is how the world works. Storms, the wind and the rain, actually bring life. So maybe, maybe storms are actually the kindness of God to the world. Maybe storms are just part of the way that God works. And maybe that's true about life in general. What if life's storms, moving from the physical to the spiritual and the circumstances, what if life's storms are the very evidence of God's loving and caring presence and sovereign action in our lives? What if life's storms, the hard places, the inconvenient places, are actually the evidence of God's loving and caring sovereign presence in our lives? What if, as my title suggests, we learn and experience the best things in the hardest of places? I think that we kind of get that. And I think that we sort of believe that. I mean, I say sort of believe that because we spend a good deal of time avoiding the hard places. But God loves us enough I think our text teaches us to make sure that in this life we experience some wind and some rain, some storms. God loves us enough to make sure that in this life we will experience some real storms. Notice in verse 22, in the first verse of our passage, it says, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. He made them get into the boat. That verb, made there, means to command with authority. It wasn't like, hey guys, you want to get in the boat and go on a boat ride? Maybe go see what's on the other side? He commanded them with authority. He forced them to get in the boat. 
Now, they had just been on the other side. There were Jesus and the crowds followed. You'll remember this from last week. And Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish and fed the multitude. And they're all there together. And it's this awesome experience of God's power. It's this big miracle thing. And everyone was satisfied. And the disciples got to participate in it. They were involved. And then there were baskets left over for them. And now Jesus says, get in the boat and go to the other side. Well, Jesus, are you coming with us? No. Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. They get in the boat. They go to the other side. It seems as though Jesus decided that the boys needed a little storm. I mean, you... you, you, That's all, folks. You, You don't think it's a coincidence, do you, that Jesus made them get in the boat and the storm came? You didn't think that, did you? No, Jesus has a way of getting the boys into storms. Jesus decided that the guys needed a storm. Here's why. We're given this incredibly helpful uh, little sentence of insight from Mark's parallel account of this. It, It fast forwards us into the story to when Jesus gets in the boat, but it gives us an important insight. Then Jesus got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. Look at this. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Okay, wait a minute. Set up a tent. Let's camp right there. They they just saw this incredible display of the power of Christ, this glorious provision that came from Christ's hand. They not only witnessed it, they participated in it, and they benefited from it. But it says they didn't gain any insight from it. Their hearts were hardened, meaning there was something that they weren't getting. In that incredible place of God's power and his miraculous provision, they had failed to see something that Jesus wanted them to see at this moment in their lives, in their journey with him, and their discipleship. Jesus knew that they needed a hard place to learn a good thing that they would be able to learn something in the hard storm that they couldn't learn on that bountiful shore. Some things are only learned the hard way. I mean, that's just true. You know, parents, we always say to our kids, our kids like, listen, dude, you, you can learn the hard way or you can just do what I say, right? And they usually want to learn the hard way. But some things are, are, are just learn the hard way. That's, that's part of the journey of life. That's part of journeying with Jesus. Uh, we're reminded of Hebrews twelve six. It says, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And you don't need to think about discipline there as a punitive thing, a thing you're having to do with punishment or a negative thing. It's part of a training thing. It's part of a life formation thing. It's part of the way that God works in us. We sometimes learn the best things in the hardest places. They hadn't gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, so they needed a storm. So they get in the storm. Jesus goes up on the mountain. They're there by themselves. You'll remember it was the end of the day when Jesus made them get in the storm. And so now they're heading out onto the lake in the middle of the night. And the lake is only about four miles in diameter at that point. John tells us that they were many stadia away from the, la- uh, at the shore, which means they were probably about halfway through the lake. 
The reason that there's some tumultuous weather at the Sea of Galilee is Mount Hermon stands just to the north at 9,200 feet, almost 10,000 feet. And the Sea of Galilee is almost 1,000 feet below sea level, seven or 800 feet below sea level. So there's this weather effect that happens there and there's real storms that take place. They get in the boat, they head out by themselves. It's the middle of the night and this great storm arises. Now, these were experienced fishermen. This wasn't their first time at the oars. They knew when to put up the sails. They knew when to let down the sails. They knew what to do in a storm. But we're told in in Mark chapter 6 that Jesus saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and the waves. So this is no super, or excuse me, no normal storm. This is like a Jesus storm. This is a gnarly, gnarly storm. And they're in serious trouble, trouble, struggling against the waves. It says in our text that they were buffeted by the wind, which means literally in the Greek, they were tortured by the wind. And now they've been out there for quite a while. Because we're told in our text that when Jesus came to him, shortly before dawn, he came walking on the water. In other translations, it says, in the fourth watch of the night. Roman time divided the night into four watches. From 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. was the first watch. From 9 p.m. to midnight was the second watch. From midnight to 3 a.m. was the third watch. The fourth watch, or what our translation here calls the early mornings before dawn, was 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. That means if they went out in the evening before it got dark and they've been out there sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., they've been in this boat for at least nine hours now and made very little progress. Again, experienced sailors, they have been in the boat for almost nine hours, literally tortured by the wind and the waves. Jesus saw that they were in serious trouble. And so what does Jesus do? He waits all night long before he comes to them. Thanks, God. Jesus is mean. No, he's not mean. Maybe he knows what he's doing. But it's weird like that. Remember Martha and Mary and Lazarus? Remember them? Two sisters and a brother. And they were great friends of Christ. Christ would uh, dine at their house and, you know, they would spend time together and all this stuff. And do you remember in the middle of the book of John where Lazarus gets sick? So when Lazarus gets sick in John chapter 11, Jesus was away from the village where Mary and Martha and, and, and Lazarus lived. And they, they sent word to Jesus, right? They just figured like our brother's sick and Jesus could heal him. They'd seen Jesus heal a whole lot of people. And they had such a great relationship that the letter that they sent to Jesus, we're told in John 11, just said this. Jesus, the one whom you love is sick. And they assumed he would know, oh, it's Lazarus. If this is coming from Martha and Mary, the one that I love, that's, that's my guy. That's, that's Lazarus. Right? There was this great relationship there. And they, of course, expected then, as soon as Jesus got the letter, he would come instantly to help. Why wouldn't he come right away to help? And then we read this in John 11. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? Jesus is mean. This, what, this, this, this doesn't even make sense. Oh man, Lazarus is sick. I love those guys. I love that family. Ah, go in a couple days. That doesn't even make sense. 
unless we learn the best things in the hardest places. Jesus' delay would actually allow Lazarus to die. Lazarus' death would give Jesus the opportunity to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. And in resurrecting Lazarus from the dead, Jesus would have the opportunity to teach Martha and Mary and Lazarus and all those whom were present and us as well the greatest lesson they would ever learn. In John chapter 11, he would say to them, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? They may have never believed that if they hadn't seen with their own eyes what Jesus did in the hardest place they had ever experienced. What have we learned the best things in the hardest places? And what if God loves us enough to make sure that we get some storms? What if it's actually God's plan not to show up until the fourth watch of the night? What if he does delay two days in our most dire times? The disciples were learning something here. And they were, like us, slow learners. This wasn't the first storm that Jesus got them into, right? It seems like whenever Jesus is getting the boat, they get into a storm. And that's no coincidence. Matthew chapter 8, just a few chapters before, we read this. Then Jesus got in the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, right? Which means the boat was sinking. Now, pause right there. You don't think this storm's a coincidence, do you? No. They follow Jesus in the boat and the storm comes. And and the boat is literally in the Greek under the water. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And another parallel gospel says that Peter said, Lord, don't you care? Jesus replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and waves and it was completely calm. Now here's what I want you to see, verse 27. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So in the first storm that Jesus brought into their lives, their takeaway from it was, dude, who is this guy? What, who is this? What kind of man is this? But look at the progression now. In the second storm, that Jesus brings into their life. They say at the end of it in verse 33 in our text, truly you are the son of God and they worshiped him, it says. Did you know that this is the first time that the disciples ever worshiped Jesus? Did you know that? They'd seen him feed the 5,000. They didn't worship him there. They'd seen him resurrect people from the dead. They didn't worship him there. They'd seen him calm a storm previously. They'd seen him heal the sick. They'd seen him cleanse the leper. They'd seen all of these things. In none of those instances did they ever worship him until they saw Jesus in the storm. It wasn't until this storm that they had clarity and perspective on who Christ was. And now for the first time, they say, truly, you are the son of God. They finally get it. On the day of Christ's baptism, the sky opened and a voice came from heaven, the father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Even the demons when confronted by Jesus would say, we know who you are. You're the son of God. The last ones to get it were the disciples. 
It took a really hard space for them to learn the most important thing, who Christ truly was. What have we learned the best things in the hardest places? And what if Jesus loves us enough to actually let us struggle in the storm for a while? He came in the fourth watch of the night. It's not as though Jesus went up on the mountain, he's praying, he kind of like lost track of the voice. And suddenly he's like, oh my gosh, it's getting late. I mean, early, where are those guys? Like, he knew. He's up on the mountain. There they are in the lake below him. Lazarus, he delayed two days. What if God loves us enough to let us suffer a bit? What if there's a work that's accomplished in the places of pain? What if Romans chapter five is true? Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, wind and rain and storms. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Stop right there. Those are the kind of things that are only learned the hard way. Endurance, proven character, and hope. That's the stuff of storms. And then look at the outcome. Look at the promise. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. You know, I think we get that there's going to be storms in life, but we we want them to be brief. We want them to be punctiliar, meaning they happen in an instant and they stop right there and there's no more to it. We could take anything for a minute. It's not always the way life goes, is it? Fourth watch of the night. There's something to be learned there. Nine hours at the oar all night long in that dark, difficult, battered place. But Jesus came. You know, I think from our human estimation, we'd say he came, it seems like he came too late. Why not sooner? Peter, who was in that boat that night, obviously, later on wrote this from a place of real clear perspective. He wrote, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while. And how long is a little while? Too long. Thank you, Tony. After you've suffered a little while, which is too long, God will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Right? That's a a promise right there. But look, that's after a while. The first watch is gone. The second watch is gone. The third watch is gone. The fourth watch Lazarus' first day is gone. The second day is gone. It seems as though it's too late. This This is Peter who was in the boat that day, who asked in the first storm that question, Lord, don't you care? And now he's got a different question altogether. Lord, if it's you, I want to walk on the water too. That's transformation. That's a big change from like, Lord, don't you care? To like, hey, Lord, if it's you, you can make me walk on the water too. 
That's some real transformation. Peter experienced through hard places brought to him by God a healthy storm theology. That God is at work in the midst of our difficulties. And what if God in his great love for you wants to do something really good in your life, restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast? And what if that good work is accomplished through life's hard storms? Remembering that he's sovereign over all of life's circumstances. You know, there are, there, there are some storms that are just storms. There are some storms in life that are our, our own messes that we've made through our own bad choices. And then there are storms like this that God has ordained for our life. God is sovereign over all of them. And again, when Jesus was up on the mountain, he was presiding over the whole thing. He didn't leave them. He was still present with them. He showed himself to be present with him when he came walking to them on the water. Look, it's a ghost. What else would they think? Middle of the night? Yeah, it's a ghost. Don't be afraid. It's I. Jesus came to them. But the whole time, he's sovereign, in control, watching, waiting to do his work. And that's true of this life as well. Look what Hebrews 7 says about Jesus. First of all, Scripture tells us he's high and exalted at the right hand of Father. And it says, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. Sometimes life's storms, life's trials, when we're battered by the winds of this world, it feels as though Christ is absent and he fors- he's forsaken us and he's left us and he's late and he hasn't come through. I know that's how it feels. But he's sovereign and he's enthroned and he's watching and he lives to make intercession for us, which means he is actively present in our pain. He is actively present in our hard places. During those long, dark nine hours in the boat, Jesus held both the storm and the disciples in his sovereign hands. And what if we really laid hold of that by faith? What if we didn't lose sight of the fact that whatever this trial is, it's facing us, whatever this difficulty is, Christ holds both that and us in his sovereign hands? What if we knew he was in control of, presiding over and present with us in every difficulty? Would it perhaps make us view storms differently? Would it help us transition from the questions, where are you and don't you care? To what good thing are you doing in this difficult circumstance in my life? That's change. That's transformation. That's Peter in the first storm to Peter in the second storm. Uh, Israel often got themselves in a whole truckload of trouble, as we know from the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that the things that they went through are there in part for us to learn from, right? You can learn the hard way. You can learn by reading the story of Israel. And so we often read the story of Israel and see how God worked faithfully in their journey. Look at this one from Isaiah chapter 30. They're in a difficult time. And it says, So the Lord must wait for you to come to him so that he can show you his love and compassion. 
Okay, pause right there. There's a picture of where we often find ourselves in the midst of a difficult journey and not fully coming to the Lord, just kind of out there stuck at the oars, just says the Lord, another translation says, the Lord waits on high to have compassion on you. And then for the Lord is a faithful God. Blessed are those who wait for his help. It's the fourth watch. Look at this encouragement. Oh, people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. He will be gracious if you ask for help. He will surely respond to the sound of your cries. Though the Lord gave you adversity for food and suffering for drink. Stop right there for just a moment. Give me your attention, please. This is a hard sermon and these are hard words for people that are in real places of pain. There's a lot of families in our church that are in real places of pain right now. Really straining at the oars, really battered by the waves. A long, dark season. These are solemn, sober, holy things to hear in those spaces. God is sovereign. Though the Lord gave you adversity for food and suffering for drink, though he's let you be in this storm. Look what it says. He will still be with you to teach you. And you will see your teacher with your own eyes. Your own ears will hear him right behind you. A voice will say, this is the way you should go. I wonder if the disciples thought of that very passage when Jesus came to them on the water and identified himself. Your own eyes will see your teacher. He will be with you. That's what they called him, rabbi, teacher. And here he comes on the water to them, just like he was faithful to Israel, he was faithful to the disciples, and he will be faithful to us. And the disciples would begin to, as we're learning, see storms differently because having gone through a couple now, they saw Jesus differently. Truly, you are the Son of God. In fact, their perspective is so different now that Peter has this radical moment of clarity. Did you... you, you, In, In my advanced years, I've developed that... I like it though. Did you notice this radical moment of clarity Peter has? He suddenly suspects that this Jesus who was walking on the water, who's calmed storms before and raised people from the dead and all these other things, he suddenly suspects that this Jesus could allow Peter to also walk on the water if he so desired. And Peter says this crazy, crazy thing. Jesus, if it's you, then tell me to come walk on the water to you. Like, that's crazy. I imagine James and John were like, you idiot. Peter, what do you, who says that? Peter, what, what, what do you, what do you? This is an incredible moment of clarity. Who Christ is, his power, his ability. And faith. This is an incredible moment of faith. Jesus, if it's really you, then I don't have to go under in this storm. I can actually rise over this storm. What a profound, radical moment of faith. And Jesus says, okay, Pete, come. Peter, like, Peter got, 
Peter walked on water. Like Peter's kind of an easy punching bag for preachers. And we read about Peter in the Bible and we're like, this guy was kind of silly. Peter is actually awesome. Peter walked on water. I didn't see Matthew, James, John, Thaddeus, Bartholomew, any other disciples ever walk on water. Only Pete. Peter walked on water. Until. It says in verse 30, when he saw the wind, he began to fear and he began to sink. Now there's something there for us, isn't there? When Peter had his moment of clarity, he had this incredible faith. He sees Jesus. He sees Jesus walking on the very circumstances that previously threatened his existence. He says, Jesus, I want to walk, on the, I want to walk with you in the storm. Notice his prayer wasn't, Jesus, make the storm stop. That, that prayer would have made a lot of sense. He'd seen Jesus make a storm stop before. That was not what he asked. Jesus, I want to walk with you in the storm. And he did it until his vision of the storm became bigger than his vision of Jesus. This is where he started to lose clarity. He got his eyes off of Jesus. And it says in verse 30, when he saw the wind, he started to look around. He said, this is too much. This is too big. And he began to sink. And he just said the most simplest prayer that we've all said and should say, Jesus, save me. And Jesus reached out, saved him. Again, I wonder if he thought of this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 41, where the Lord says to Israel, fear not for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand saying to you, fear not, I will help you. And he did it for Peter. And they get back in the boat and Jesus calms the storm. But the lesson isn't over yet. Jesus, so mean, he turns to Peter. He says, Peter, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? James and John are like, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. (laughs) But you have little faith. Wait a minute. I've never seen faith like Peter's faith. Peter, in faith in who Christ was, walked with Jesus in the storm. And now Jesus rebukes him and says, Peter, you have little faith. In what way was Peter's faith little? Because it seemed rather huge to me. Fast forward in the book of Matthew to Matthew 17, where Jesus helps us think about faith as it pertains to size of it. And he says this, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, Anybody ever planted a mustard plant? No, you haven't. But you know from Bible studies that mustard seeds are tiny, tiny little seeds. If you have faith the size of a tiny mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. So Jesus helps us understand, and the story helps us understand that when it comes to faith, it's not necessarily the size as we generally think of scale of our faith. Rather, it is the aim or the object of our faith. The bigness is found in whom, where we place our faith, where Peter kept his eyes, where Peter put his attention. It's not a size thing. It's an aim thing. 
Our faith is meant to be aimed in a big way directly at Jesus. Jesus is the one in whom we put all of our hope. Jesus is actually bigger than our problems. Jesus is always bigger than the circumstances that threaten us. But you know how it is. Sometimes we get our eyes on the wind and it seems as though the storm is bigger than our Jesus. And that's just never true. And that's where faith is little. It's when it's not placed squarely on the person of Jesus, our hearts, our eyes, our mind, our attention focused on him. But we, we, we let the, the storm of this life cloud and muddy up our vision. So Colossians 3 tells us that in this life as Christians, we ought to live this way. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Okay, so if if you're a Christian, you've repented of your sins, put your faith in Jesus Christ, been forgiven, you have new life, resurrected life, born again. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What this isn't telling the Christian to do is to cocoon away or be the proverbial ostrich that puts his or her head in the sand and just kind of hides from the world or the situations. This is saying we transcend that by fixing our affection and our hope on the person of Jesus. Keep looking up. Keep your eyes on Jesus, not merely the circumstances and the flow and the difficulties and challenges of this world. Keep your eyes on Jesus. The Old Testament Israel form of that is in Isaiah, again, verse chapter 26, where it says, you will keep in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you because he trusts in you. Peace in the midst of the storm. Walking with Jesus in the midst of the storm because our minds are fixed on him. The author of Hebrews says the same thing this way. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. It's not that our faith has to be stronger in the sense of size. It's just that we have to look at Jesus longer in the midst of the storm. And that immediately, admittedly can be difficult to do. You know, usually when the storm first hits, we're all, our, our default is often like, okay, Jesus, I'm, I'm trusting you in this. And that's, that's, a, that's a pretty easy first watch sort of posture. The difficulty of that increases in the second watch and in the third and in the fourth watch of the night where it is darkest before the dawn after a long season of being battered and buffeted by the waves. It can be hard to keep our eyes on Jesus. The question, why did you doubt, is answered in the fact that Peter looked away. But what the text teaches us is that Jesus is always worthy of our full focus, attention, putting all of our hope in him. He's the only one who saves us when we're sinking. 
He's the only one who can walk on the very circumstances that threaten our existence. He's the only one who could get us back in the boat and calm the storm. He's faithful. And he did it for the boys. Now let me say something. And here I end. The story finished well for the disciples. Got in the boat, storm left, they got to the other side. Jesus heals everybody in sight. Story finished well. Life's not always that way for us, is it? But ultimately, ultimately, God will get us to the other side. And Paul the Apostle said, these present troubles are not even worthy to be compared with the glory we shall see. The storms of this life, those hard, hard places, won't even be worthy mentioning when we see Jesus in glory. God, give us faith to hold on in the dark nights. Give us trust, Lord, in those stormy places. And Lord, we we together would pray for those families in our church who are in real dark places right now. We bring them before the throne of grace where they can receive help in the time of need. We would pray for those in our church and in our community in those dark places that you would show yourself to be present with them. That you would reach out with your righteous right hand and you would grab them and save them. You'd pull them out of the waters into which they're sinking pray that your presence, your nearness would be their good. In your presence, they would discover peace, even joy, and that the joy of the Lord would be their strength. Please, God, be merciful to those in our family who are suffering. And also, Lord, we would pray for those of us who are experiencing smooth seas and blue skies. We say, thank you, God. We know that that too is a gift. And we ask that we wouldn't drift in these days, but we'd fix our eyes on you, Jesus. And that you and your love and your mercy would purge our heart of idols. That Jesus, you'd be the source and the center of all of our joy. In good times and in bad times, in sickness or in health, you'd be the source and the center of all our joy. For Jesus, you alone are worthy. All of our hope is in you.